2: Welcome back from your weekends, and and, uh, let me say, uh, first of all, that today's show required some heroic efforts. Uh, The producer we had scheduled to do the show uh, had a family medical emergency. I'm not going to even say which producer, because I don't want to violate their privacy, but uh, it meant that other people had to swing into action, and by other people, I mostly mean senior producer Betsy Kaplan, uh, who has pulled today's show together with her usual uh, heroic uh, efforts, Uh, and... I also wanted to say that one of the topics we're not going to talk about today, because I don't know, I don't know why, we just know we're just not, is Elaine Chao. But there's quite a bit of uh, coverage today uh, about Elaine Chao. As you probably know, she is the Secretary of Transportation uh, to Donald Trump, and she's the wife of Mitch McConnell. So a member of the Trump cabinet, wife of Mitch McConnell. I think right away we can say she's not choosy, you know, she's not real picky. Um and she's involved in a pretty familiar pattern. Uh, her family is uh, owns an enormous uh, shipping business uh, uh, that uh, wants to do a lot of business and does a lot of business with China. And it just seems as though, and of course, she and I guess Mitch have received enormous amount of just family money from this company too. So she's doing what she can, and I I just feel like there might be a lot of family pressure. You know, I mean, I think like at Thanksgiving or whatever, maybe the family says Lane. You're working for a kleptocracy. How come you haven't tried to get us any kind of really inappropriate favors like everybody else is doing for his or her family? What's wrong with us, Elaine? How come you're not doing anything? So think about it that way. Think about what it would be like to be in her shoes. And, like, they point to all these other people. And say, look at him. Of course, a lot of those other people aren't in the cabinet anymore. Uh, All right. So it's time to move on to what we are talking about, a much more interesting topic. So in the second segment, uh, you may have seen that a bunch of theatrical types uh, got together in Queens over the weekend and decided to uh, call some dramatic attention to the actual content of the Mueller report. You know, because Bob Mueller, it's it's sort of like, if you watch that announcement last week, it was sort of like a reading is fundamental campaign. It's like, please read my report. It's all in there. Come on, you have to read it. R-E-A-D. Come on. Um, and anyway, one of the ways that they're trying to help out a little bit is they did a uh, live uh, marathon reading of the Mueller report. We'll tell you more about that. And then in the final segment, John Ziegler, who is a conservative talk show host, that's mainly what he's been in his life, but not your typical conservative talk show host. In a lot of ways. And you may remember him also from the famous David Foster Wallace profile of him, which is not a fond memory for John Ziegler and not one I will be bringing up today. But he he has written an essay basically saying he thinks that if this country can't impeach Donald Trump, it means that this country is not a great country anymore, which is probably not going to make him any more popular among his fellow conservatives. But right now, we're going to be following a story which has been of great interest to senior producer Betsy Kaplan and uh, subsequently to all of us as well. Uh, It involves uh, the citizenship question uh, on the census, the proposed citizenship question on the census. It also involves the way that uh, district lines are drawn uh, uh, for voting districts uh, and the whole field known as gerrymandering, and it also involves, of all things, kind of a family feud that resulted in an unexpected bonus of information. And here to explain all of the above uh, to us is a regular and much cherished guest of the show, Mark Joseph Stern, lawyer and writer who covers courts and the law for Slate.com. Hi, Mark. Hi, thank you so much for having me back on, and thank you for the kind words. So, um, this is complicated. Maybe maybe we have to start with um, explaining who Thomas Hoffler was. Thomas Hoffler has departed this earth, which is a significant part of the story, but, but who was he in life?
3: Yeah, so Thomas Hoffler was essentially the Republican Party's gerrymandering guru, and he is the architect of a number of, Of egregiously gerrymandered maps around the country, uh, including some still in use in uh, states like North Carolina. He also helped to draw gerrymanders in Texas and Pennsylvania. Uh, He worked directly with the Republican National Committee uh, to spearhead Project Red Map in 2010, which was the uh, initiative to. Take every state house in the 2010 election, which Republicans were pretty successful at, and then use that control... To draw extreme gerrymanders that entrenched Republican power over the next 10 years. So he had very sophisticated uh, programs to draw these maps that he helped to build. Uh, he had a profound understanding of exactly how to divvy up populations uh, in order to dilute votes for Democratic candidates. Um, he knew exactly what data was needed. And he would actually travel around the country not only drawing his own maps and, and offering his software, but actually holding these meetings with Republican lawmakers in different states, teaching them the tricks of the trade, uh, and explaining to them how they could gerrymander effectively in a way that would entrench their power and in a way that wouldn't be struck down in court.
2: I think that last thing you said is very important and very germane to what we're saying today, So, because uh, that was a big thing for him. I mean, one of the things he would essentially say at these kind of Harold Hill-like presentations he would do as he traveled the country on Offering 76 trombones of gerrymandering was (laughs) don't get greedy. Don't get, you know, there's a way to do this that's subtle enough so that it will withstand a, a court challenge. But if you go for the gold, if you shoot for the moon, you know, you start to open yourself up.
3: Yes, that was a part of it. And the other part was be really serious. So don't go and brag about how you've put the opposite party out of business. Uh, Don't be really open about your gerrymandering. Feign ignorance. Uh, Pretend like you aren't doing what you're doing. Keep your files secret. Don't email when you can call. I mean, all kinds of really sort of basic security stuff uh, so that there was no smoking gun evidence when these maps were challenged in court.
2: Right. I mean, that is one of the uh, great ironies of, of the story that you're about to tell, is that this guy, and he had this kind of cornball way of uh, uh, of phrasing it, but he'd say uh, emails are the devil's tool, or he'd say the E in email stands for eternal, meaning you, it just never goes away. Um, so he's always, you know, warning people about digital uh, invasions and how you have to be incredible. That sounds like uh, some kind of medical exam, uh, but how your your digital security has to be just watertight. He's like Laura Poitras using air gap computers and stuff. You just don't open yourself up to this. And then what happens? What happens is he dies. Uh, he's estranged from his daughter, she doesn't even know he died, that's how estranged they are, Uh, and then she discovers something.
3: Yes, that's right, Uh, and there's a really tragic backstory here. It's not worth delving into in graphic detail, but uh, his daughter Stephanie had uh, an extremely troubled and abusive potentially abusive relationship there are all kinds of allegations about this Uh, basically Thomas Hoffeller tried to seize custody of his grandchild there was this big fight Uh, they did not talk uh, for many many years they did not speak Uh, after Stephanie discovered that her father had died of cancer Uh, Last year, uh, she went to her mother's house. She was still on on fairly good terms with her mother uh, and found this trove of materials that uh, included 18 thumb drives and four uh, hard drives. So like a a mind boggling amount of of information, it turned out to be more than 75,000 files in all. And she asked her mom, uh, hey, is it okay if I take these and look through them? And her mom said, "Uh, sure, no problem, Uh, do what you will with them. Uh, Stephanie, turns out to be, it seems... Uh, at least an opponent of gerrymandering, if not an outright progressive. Uh, she, she hasn't been super media-friendly. Uh, but basically she she told uh, someone who worked at Common Cause what she had discovered. Common Cause happens to be the plaintiff in a major case in North Carolina right now, challenging the state's legislative gerrymander. So Common Cause lawyer says, uh, yeah, we would probably like to see that, kind of goes up the chain, and Common cause and their lawyers issue a formal subpoena to Stephanie uh, because they want to be totally above board, take lawful ownership of all 18 thumb drives and four hard drives. Uh, and quickly discover that indeed they have a lot of smoking guns basically so far as we can tell right now a huge amount of Hoffler's life's work all of that stuff he told his clients to hide and conceal is now in the hands of his uh, political opponents
2: right so bringing this stuff to common cause It was sort of like having the plans to the Death Star and bringing it to Luke Skywalker. I mean, you couldn't (laughs) really pick somebody beyond common cause who would be more or or, or less of a favorite idea for uh, Thomas Hoffler when he was alive. So um, I think we have to sort of say a little bit, Mark, about how the law views... First of all, the gerrymandering question, because I I think, you know, as is often the case in America, what is considered either legal or constitutional is sometimes at least as appalling as what is illegal and unconstitutional. So the highest court, as I understand it, has a pretty expansive view for a lot of kind about a lot of kinds of gerrymandering. If you're trying to further entrench your power as a political party or keep an incumbent in office, that's not necessarily unconstitutional.
3: Yeah, so the Supreme Court has said that most racial gerrymandering is unlawful, that you're not right. supposed to draw uh, districts along racial lines. Uh, even Justice Clarence Thomas agrees that is pretty well settled. Uh, but we're actually waiting right now for the Supreme Court to tell us uh, whether or not partisan gerrymandering is unconstitutional, whether uh, when the party in power draws maps along political lines in an effort to dilute votes Uh, for their opponents, whether that violates the First Amendment. Um, A lot of strong arguments that it does. It's unclear how the court will rule. Uh, But it's worth noting that every single state constitution has its own provision guaranteeing uh, some form of free and equal elections, the right to vote, uh, the right to free association, and the right to equal protection. Uh, And state supreme courts have final say over the meaning of their state's constitution. So it's important to point out here that no matter how the U.S. Supreme Court rules on partisan gerrymandering, state Supreme Courts are still perfectly free to come in and say that partisan gerrymandering violates their own state constitutions. That actually happened last year in Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court struck down a partisan gerrymander under the Pennsylvania Constitution and had the maps redrawn in a much fairer way. So again, even if SCOTUS says we don't care about partisan gerrymandering, there can still be claims in states' courts uh, and state constitutions can still limit that practice.
2: Now, meanwhile, one of the things that Thomas Hofler figured out way back when, one of the reasons he was so interested in state legislatures uh, leading up to to 2010, is that he who can control or radically affect the composition of state legislatures can therefore radically uh, affect um, reapportionment uh, following a census. And so uh, as we head into this census season, uh, that's on everybody's minds. And there's this really unusual new step uh, of uh, attempting to include a question about citizenship, which hasn't been in the census for a really, really long time. Uh, And Wilbur Ross, first of all, Wilbur Ross, who's the Secretary of Commerce and therefore has some jurisdiction over the census, has already been caught in one pretty obvious lie. He claimed that the Justice Department came to him. He was just sitting there minding his own business, not even thinking about the citizenship question or census or any anything. And the Justice Department came to him and said that they really needed to do this. And since then, in one court case, there are emails that show that Ross, Pressure the Justice Department behind the scenes to send him that question that he claimed he just sort of got out of the blue that it was and and he in public has claimed it was their idea not his that's not true but the next question is what's the whole idea behind this citizenship question you know is it something that the Justice Department might legitimately want for some kind kind of enforcement reasons uh, and or is it a, a naked political move and here all of this crap that was found in Hoffler's house by his daughter becomes especially relevant, Mark.
3: Right, exactly, because uh, the internal letter that uh, one DOJ official sent to the top DOJ official on this issue that was eventually sort of adopted and sent along to Wilbur Ross, uh, it turns out to quote directly uh a Thomas Hoffler memo written in 2015 uh that involves Texas Republicans he, again he had clients all across the country um in which he explained that if the upcoming census included a citizenship question uh that that could be used to aggrandize the power of white voters and Republican voters and disfavor actively disfavor Democrats and non-whites. In that context, he was focusing on Hispanics uh, Hispanics and immigrants, in particular, if there is a citizenship question, he said point blank, uh, it can and will be used uh, to help boost white rep- white Republican voting power. Uh, parts of that memo were then adopted verbatim in this DOJ letter that was that played a huge role uh, in the behind-the-scenes sort of pretext building to justify the census citizenship question. Uh, and again, we only know about it now. Because it happened to be one of these seventy-five thousand files that was in one of those hard drives that Hoffler's daughter turned over to Common Cause.
2: So, but this is pretty, you know, significant because it does demonstrate intent. It does you know, demonstrate that the, the purpose of this. I mean, I think it's a reasonable construction of the evidence anyway that you know that the purpose of this would be political in nature as opposed to having some just universal government enforcement uh, purpose. The fact that it's Hoffler's own language and that was what he was interested in was politics and political victories uh, for one side. Um, uh, The Supreme Court is now considering the citizenship question, but how does this particular brand new revelation make its way into the case? Can it?
3: Yes. So this is tricky, and it's gotten uh, law professors all abuzz over these technical rules of of civil procedure, basically. Uh, It is not in the official record before the Supreme Court. However, uh, hours after it came to light uh, publicly, the plaintiffs in the census case did file it with the Supreme Court to sort of say, hey, we found this. We're dealing with it in the lower courts. The plaintiffs are actually trying to uh, get sanctions against the DOJ official who used the Hoffler memo because he appears to have lied about it uh, in a deposition under oath. Um, But, you know, the Supreme Court gets to do whatever it wants. It's not really supposed to just take judicial notice of some letter filed uh, weeks before its decisions come down. That's not the typical procedure. But, again, they get to do what they want. And if they choose to go beyond the record that was before them when the case was argued, they absolutely can. So there is a chance that, you know, this could flip a vote behind the scenes or that at the very least the dissenters will use this uh, to sort of claim that the majority uh, is acting illegitimately or allowing the Trump administration to get away with something that it shouldn't. Uh, but it also may have sadly just come to light a little too late to make any difference in the case.
2: Right. And so we should say this has been through the, uh, the lower federal courts, right? This has uh, already had a hearing.
3: Yeah, that's right. So this has gone through federal district court, right? A federal district judge ruled against the, the census citizenship qu- uh, questions that it was illegal. It leapfrogged up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments on it. And during all of that time, they were dealing with a record that just didn't include the Hoffler memo because nobody really knew about it, or at least nobody who was willing to bring it to attention. Um, and, and so now there's a fear that it's just too late in the game to do anything about it. Uh, you know, ideally what would happen is the the Supreme Court would just send this case back down for further proceedings uh, and allow the lower court to incorporate the memo into his findings. Uh, But the problem is the citizen, the the Census Bureau says it has to start printing these uh, pages by July. There's a ticking time bomb here, basically. So the Supreme Court just doesn't have time to send the case back down. It has to make a decision one way or the other by late June.
2: Um, so meanwhile, you know, there's these other 7,400, I can't do that right, but however many, 74,999 files. Yeah. Um, so um, there, are, there's all those, and they no doubt have to do with the other thing that we were talking about. So the census is kind of the precursor to, to what happens with gerrymandering. You know, if you can get the numbers to go a certain way, uh, then you, you're working with a different kind of playing field. But then there is this whole aspect of gerrymandering. And as you said. This isn't simply a federal court issue. It can come up in uh, any number of state supreme courts or appellate court systems within the states. Do we, does Common Cause know yet what it has? I mean, does, does it have this kind of Swiss Army knife of information that it can use in all kinds of cases like this?
3: So I will say, let me be very candid about this. Uh, common Cause is being extremely careful about what they are telling the public about what they have and what they know. And the reason why is because Republican attorneys are basically down their throats. Uh, about claims of uh, attorney-client privilege. Now, Hoffler was not a lawyer for these guys. He was not a lawyer at all. Uh, But Republicans, as soon as they realized what Common Cause had, they started filing all these objections. Uh, They started making all these claims, saying, you shouldn't be able to look at this. You shouldn't even be able to have it. You should have to return it, blah, blah, blah. Uh, So far, the the courts have have pretty much brushed those aside. They don't seem to have much merit. But Common Cause does not want to seem like it's being cavalier about this and by all accounts it is not being cavalier about it it's been very very careful uh, not to release any kind of sensitive information, not to share any with potential allies. Um, the only reason that the census memo wound up in litigation in New York is because the same lawyers who work for Common Cause in North Carolina happen to work on the census case. <laughs> um, so we don't know exactly what they have, but I do get the sense that they have a lot, a great deal of information. Uh, it does seem from what Republican lawyers have actually said in court already, Uh, that they have a ton of files involving a ton of gerrymandering across a ton of states. That is from Republicans' own mouths. They feel like This is a trove. They feel like this is really everything that Hoffler worked on, at least for the latter part of his career, is in these hard drives and thumb drives. So, again, we don't have a a, a great sense of everything, but it probably is a lot of stuff and a lot of smoking gun evidence that's going to hurt Republicans in court for years.
2: Right. Well, we never have a great sense of everything. Uh, (laughs) But maybe eventually Common Cause will clear all this information out and clear up all the questions about it. And then the New York theater community can read all (laughs) 75,000. Uh, of Thomas Hoffler's undiscovered, previously undiscovered computer files. Mark Joseph Stern, lawyer, writer who covers the courts and the law for Slate, where you can see uh, his piece about this whole question. Thanks for doing this again.
3: Thanks so much for having me on. Always a pleasure.
2: All right. We'll be in touch soon. Uh, now we are going to take a break, uh, and when we come back... Yeah, no, they're not reading the Hoffler files, but they are uh, reading, they did read the Mueller Report in a marathon reading involving some of the big stars of New York theater. We'll be uh, back with more about that. Word
0: would be necessary to understand gerrymandering. Though we cast more votes for Democrat
4: reps than for GOP folks through gerrymandering. They got control of Congress, which is unfair as can be, folks. And that's not slandering. They promised they would run the government with ease. But all they've done is stall and call dumb hearings. Please, no wonder they're less
0: popular than colonoscopies.
2: Okay, we're back. Uh, Some of you may have seen a column I wrote over the weekend, which I uh, rendered... The speech uh, of Robert Mueller, or what I would imagine to be his thoughts right now, uh, in the rhyme and meter of Dr. Seuss's "Oh, the Places You'll Go. Uh, the point being that Donald, that Robert Mueller, when he stood before the press last week, it, it's just so clear. It really was like a reading is fundamental commercial or something. It's like, please, read my report. It's it's there. It's in there. I don't want to go testify. I already wrote a report. The report has these carefully chosen words, just read it and you'll see, but people don't read. Uh, Four hundred and forty-eight, or whatever it is, page reports, uh, and but you know, but once a year, I don't know if they still do this, but once a year down in New London, they used to read all of Moby Dick in a marathon reading, and people on Bloomsday read all of Ulysses in these marathon readings. So, and I don't think the Mueller report is as long as either one of those and probably a little bit more comprehensible than Ulysses. So uh, some people in the world of New York theater uh, decided, why not read The Mueller Report out loud? And we'll talk about why and how it went with Jackson Gay, founding member uh, of New Neighborhood. She's directed dozens of plays off-Broadway. She's the director of artistic programming for Fuller Road Artist Residency. I might add, she is the director of one of my favorite plays of the last 10 or so years, These Paper Bullets, which was staged admirably at Yale Rep, Uh, also with us Dan Butler executive director for Fuller Road artist residency and actor writer director producer best known possibly to you at least to TV audiences for his six years as bulldog on Fraser. so they're both with us and uh, welcome to both of you uh, and uh, Jackson I'm going to start with you uh, talk about the genesis of this why did you feel that this was either necessary or helpful
0: Yes, uh, thank you so much for having us. I um, am probably like many, many people. I was watching uh, the news and uh, reading articles and things about the Mueller report. And um, I thought, you know, it's it's too bad I actually haven't read this thing for myself and that more people haven't um, because it would be it would be wonderful to. Um, come to my, my own conclusions, uh, instead of just relying on what people tell me that's in it and, and, um, what I should and should not think about it. So that really set the whole thing off.
2: You know, Dan Butler, there's a way in which the stage has been uh, able to respond to the Trump presidency with more alacrity and immediacy than a lot of other uh, media or genres could just because it takes a long time to shoot a movie or make a TV series or or whatever. So we've been kind of seeing it uh, straight along uh, at the public theater and regional theater. I was in New York last weekend at the musical The Prom. There's a Trump joke where the whole audience goes nuts. Uh, I saw Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus, which is in some ways one long commentary on the Trump presidency. So I'm guessing, Dan Butler, that it wasn't that difficult to persuade uh, theater people to get involved in a project like this.
1: Well, no, and I think we count uh, throughout all time, we count on the artists to be the the conscience and the pioneers and, you know, to go to, to new places. And it's strange that this is sort of going back to an old place, which is, You've got to become a fully uh, participating member of this society. You've got to be an active, engaged American citizen for democracy to work. We don't, you know, throughout our history, we haven't agreed on lots of things. But to keep some sort of dialogue out there and to be able to uh, be engaged as an American citizen through the, uh, the life I've chosen to pursue as an artist was just uh, an exhilarating opportunity.
2: You know, Jackson, I think Dan makes a great point, too, and if you really sort of think about the role of theater through the times, you know, certainly dating back to Aristophanes, you know, it was a kind of running commentary uh, on what people were thinking about and talking about in the streets, Uh, and and it it probably is a very appropriate thing to be doing something like this now, although this is different, right? This isn't by Aristophanes. This is by Robert Mueller. So part of the job of the reading, I guess, is, I mean, I'm not saying Robert Mueller's not a great writer. He'll probably get an EGOT by the time he's done. You know, there'll be uh, he'll get a spoken word Grammy, and then there'll be a, like a TV adaptation. But um, but what was the job? What were you ask, asking people to do as they stepped up to the mic?
0: I was simply asking and hoping that people would just read it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think that we ended up doing um, a good job of trying not to comment at all. You know, people, people have their own um, leanings. Mm-hmm. And I think for the most part, people did a wonderful job of just stepping up at the mic and just reading it, reading it as straight as possible, uh, so that we could all hear and witness and again, come to our own conclusions.
2: So uh, we'll have a link on our show page to a place on Facebook where you can see some of these readings. Just We'll just give you kind of a sense. Uh, this is Taylor Jamal Barfield, a literary manager of Two River Theater, a reading from uh, the Mueller Report section. Written questions to be answered under oath by President Donald J. Trump. I don't know why I think that's funny. It's just sort of funny that that's like almost a theatrical section.
5: All right, here we go. Aside from the Trump Moscow project, did you or the Trump organization have any other prospective or actual business interests, investments, or arrangements with Russia or any Russian interest or the Russian individual during the campaign? If yes, describe the business interests, investments, and arrangements. Response to question three, parts A through G. Sometime in 2015, Michael Cohen suggested to me the possibility of a Trump Organization project in Moscow. As I recall, Mr. Cohen described this as a proposed project of a general type we have done in the past in a variety of locations. I signed the non-binding letter of intent attached to your questions as Exhibit B, which required no equity or expenditure on our end, and was consistent with the questions as Exhibit B, which required no equity or expenditure on our end, and was consistent with our ongoing efforts to expand into significant markets around the world.
2: So uh I should say that Howard Sherman who's a, a who appears semi-regularly on, on the show and who we know quite well was part of this reading and he followed Taylor Mack, the creator of Garius sequel to Titus Andronicus. I think that's a very tough position to be in theatrically. But but then, you know, so Dan Butler that that It's interesting, too, based on what Jackson just said, because you're asking theatrical people basically to not be very theatrical here. Just get the words out uh, in in the way that Robert Buller wrote them.
1: Well, yes, it was interesting since you brought up Taylor. I mean, Taylor was sort of hilarious. But it was completely the material he was asked to read because it was so technical. And it it was so like referencing to Clause 3-2 and Credit 1-2. So he just, I mean, it was um, almost like an an Ionesco play or something like that because he just took it and ran. And that wasn't really poking fun at Mueller. It was just the technicality of the writing. However, there were other times, I'm thinking of when Oscar Eustace uh, read, where the language sort of soared. So the language changed a lot. Sometimes it was very much very like dragnet, just the facts. Uh, Some of it were direct quotes of the president. and, uh, And like I said, some soared and some was very technical.
2: Right. I, I've been listening to the report on an uh, Audible, uh, Audible.com uh, audiobook f- format. And it's, it's, I mean, as is often the case with these government reports, I mean, I, I think in particular uh, of the commission on 9-11, that was an extraordinarily extraordinarily well-written report. And I think it was nominated for like a National Book Award in nonfiction or something. I mean, there are parts of it really? That, that really did, you know, work pretty well as, as nonfiction prose. Of course, with the star report, everybody rushed to grab it and read it for just purely salacious uh, re- reasons. Right. Uh, but here, yeah, I, I there are parts of it where you can sort of feel somebody is trying to tell you something pretty important in the plainest mm. language possible, right? It's not written mm. in pure legalese.
1: Absolutely. I just, you, could, you can, uh, I mean, I have a great deal of respect for uh, Mr. Mueller and all the work that was put in this and the time and the patience and the focus. Um, yes, I, I Completely agree with you that there is it's defective, it's focused. There are no extra words. I mean, there are there are repetitions of, of um, certain episodes, but you're coming at it from a different angle each time.
2: So, Jackson Gay, you're doing this uh, in Queens and I think Long Island City. Um, um, did people show up? I mean, but people who weren't readers, did, was there an audience?
0: There was. Um, we we probably had somewhere around 750 to 1,000 people over the, the 24 hours.
2: Well, there you know there are shows running right now that would be happy to have that big an audience. So, um, and and I'm I, I read the grosses. I know who's in trouble. So, um, so and Jackson, I'm also wondering. I don't know among the readers as they obviously they weren't all there at once. They're coming up one by one and maybe you know overlapping by twos and threes or whatever. But I don't was there, was there a mood, a detectable mood, or how, how were people, uh, how were people's spirits, Jackson, as they did this?
0: People were, um, I think, so happy and um, uh, excited to just be to be there and to be engaged, to be a part of it, to um, even for five minutes to get up and, and let their their own voice be heard, and at the same time to witness other people. Um, Going through that same same process, and one of the most interesting things was um, numerous people came up to me after they had read their portion and talked about just this phenomenon that that they were feeling that they wanted to keep going. Mm-hmm. I, I thought that was really interesting. Just once they started reading it, there's something about it that just made you wanna wanna keep going. Of course, you know we couldn't do that due to time and and wanting everyone to have a chance, but it was it was uh it was a joy some people were emotional um angry uh, but uh the the general feeling was one of just like this this feels so good to be doing something so patriotic
2: right. Plus, it's the week weekend before the Tonys. You got to do something. Uh, yeah. But yes, there could be this could be a whole new genre. Reading official reports, you know, you might have to audition, show up with a a ballad official report and an up tempo official report. Uh, <laughs> anyway, you may have locked on to something. Uh, for now, though, we're going to have to say goodbye and uh, congratulations and thank you for doing this project and for talking to us, Jackson Gay uh, and Dan Butler. Uh, we're going to take a break. We're going to stay kind of with this subject uh, and Tom... Uh, to uh, John Ziegler. John Ziegler, a pretty well re- well renowned conservative voice, but he has, as he frequently does, actually, broken ranks and uh, decided to say what's on his mind, and what's on his mind may not uh, please many conservatives.
1: And him and him and him. Well, let me say. Oh, excuse me. They say the only way you can reach him. Is impeach him, impeach him, impeach him, but um, you know it's what they want, just impeach him. Sir,
3: you tweeted a video of Speaker Pelosi. which
4: Substantial evidence indicates that the president's attempts to remove the special counsel were linked to the special counsel's oversight of investigations that involved the president's conduct. Can I try that again with sort of a different coloration? I don't know if you saw my Hilda in the Master Builder at the Santa Fe Ibsen Festival. One critic wrote, Kyone Wolf does a memorable job of conveying the unspoken and mostly repudiated subtext of inherited syphilis. No? Just keep going? Okay. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan. With help from Jonathan, initial reliance on a pretextual justification, McPants and me, Kyone Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jefferson Jeff Sessions. On tomorrow's show, an acclaimed director reflects on life, history, music, and everything else. And now back to
2: Colin. All right. So we are going to stay with them, not just the Mueller report, but uh, the questions that swirl around the presidency of Donald Trump. And we are going to go now to John Ziegler, a senior columnist for Mediaite uh, and uh, also hosts a weekly podcast focusing on news media issues and is a documentary filmmaker Uh, and is somebody that Uh, If you've worked in the radio business for a long time, you know who John Ziegler is. Uh, I used to work in commercial talk radio, so I really know who John Ziegler is. Uh, So knowing who John Ziegler is, I was pretty surprised to to read this piece. A great country would have already impeached Trump, uh, but maybe we should just admit we no longer qualify. So John Ziegler, welcome to our show.
4: Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for remembering me.
2: Yeah, well, um, and, and remembering you and knowing you, I suppose nothing that you do should surprise me, because one thing that has been a little bit of your signature has been unpredictability and kind of a willingness to march to the to the beat of your own drummer as opposed to whatever the political orthodoxy told you to do. But maybe you could just give me a sense of what, what built up inside you to cause you to write this piece. Well, I come
4: at this whole topic from what I I believe to be a a truly unique perspective. I'm a lifelong conservative and Republican. I was a delegate to the 2008 Republican National Convention, and yet, uh, publicly, the Democratic chairman of the Budget Committee, John Yarmuth, who's a very good old friend of mine, has acknowledged that I lobbied him from being against the impeachment of Donald Trump to being in favor of the impeachment of Donald Trump, and now he's practically the leader of what I might refer to as the Impeachment Caucus in Congress, so I think that puts me in a, in a pretty unusual position. And then, kind of to the, your point of me being an inherent contrarian, uh, in a weird way, I'm starting to move away from impeachment, not because Donald Trump doesn't deserve it. Uh, I believe that there's far more evidence uh, against him than there was against Bill Clinton. And I was in favor of Bill Clinton's impeachment and removal. I'm about one of about 13 people who have been consistent uh, on the conservative <laughs> side when it came to the impeachment of Clinton and the impeachment of, of uh, Donald Trump. And it's not because Trump uh, doesn't deserve to be impeached or the evidence isn't strongly against him. It's that I just don't think that we as a nation are prepared to do this in a way that won't allow him to be able to claim a a rather substantial victory. And it's pathetic. It's sad. But I I am wondering, and it's really just a question I'm asking, are we still great enough to rid ourselves of this cancer that is Donald Trump? And I, I have my doubts that.
2: Right. And so, by the way, we'll link to uh, John's piece in our webpage about this episode, but um, let me just uh, play devil's advocate or something uh, here. Uh, So one possible way that this could spin out, and I think it's the the thing that gives uh, Nancy Pelosi the heebie-jeebies, is this idea that, yes, you could move to impeach, you could successfully impeach in the House, it goes to the Senate, they don't convict, and Donald Trump uh, declares an enormous victory, much Izzy he declared an enormous victory after Barr's Precy uh, uh, about the Mueller report. So why is Nancy Pelosi wrong to worry about that scenario?
4: Well, I, I, I'm not going to say she's quote-unquote wrong. I think she might be uh, misguided, and I think it's a misreading of history. I, I, um, I've already mentioned the Bill Clinton impeachment. There's, a, I believe, a gross mischaracterization of what really happened there. Bill Clinton was far more popular before, than Donald Trump before impeachment. And yes, impeachment did not harm his personal popularity. But can we please look at the following few elections after Bill Clinton's impeachment? First of all, Republicans held the House, which was very rare for them to do during that time period in the late 1990s, uh, even though they didn't do as well as it, as expected. They still held the House, even after impeachment. Then in 2000, they held the House again and won the presidency with the, the son of the man, who Bill Clinton defeated, defeating Bill Clinton's vice president. And then Republicans won more congressional elections all the way until 2006 when there was a perfect storm against the Republican Party. So the idea that the Republican Party was dramatically harmed nationally by impeaching Bill Clinton is farcical. Uh, so I, I don't understand the, the, the philosophy here that we're going to pay a huge political price for doing the right thing. Uh, now, I, I believe that that's probably what's behind Nancy Pelosi's concern. But I, I, to me, the whole idea of waiting on impeachment, let's keep all our options open, nothing off the table, is inherently contradictory. Because if Donald Trump really is a mortal threat to the republic, and I think he very well may be, then you can't just say, well, you know, we might get to it someday. <laughs> this, this is urgent. You need to do this now if he's really a correct a threat to the republic. And so to to wait is inherently contradictory to the entire philosophy of engaging in impeachment in the first place.
2: Um, I don't necessarily disagree, but I'll continue to be a devil's advocate. Um, So it could also be argued, look, What impeachment is is inherently a political process because, in fact, uh, of this understanding that a sitting president can't be indicted, that you have another process there that really supersedes the law and works in a way that's pretty dramatically different from criminal law. And it exists for this one kind of purpose And, and, and that, in fact it mainly works by getting Congress to agree that there's something going on here that's so important that they have to you know, jam on the brakes and, and say, no, we, we are going to tackle this a certain way. And if there isn't the political will to do this, I mean, this is kind of a circular argument, John, but if there isn't a political will to do this, it kind of proves that it's not time to impeach. Well, I understand that argument.
4: However, and, and this is the way I convinced Congressman Yarmouth to change his position, I'm not that concerned – I am concerned, but it's not my largest concern about what happens over the next year and a half before we have another election. Although I do think if we have a major crisis, especially involving Russia, having Trump as president would be extraordinarily dangerous. But putting that aside for a moment, my, my biggest concern here is the historical precedent and what a future Congress is going to do. Let's pretend we have a really scary tyrant, someone who's not just a buffoon like Donald Trump but who is someone who is really, truly terrifying. And I am very concerned that a future Congress may be unable to impeach and remove that person because of the precedents that we are setting today with Donald Trump. Because think about this, folks. If we don't at least impeach Donald Trump, forget about removal because the Republican senators will never do that because they're a bunch of cowards and they're beholden to a cult. But if we are unable and unwilling to even impeach Donald Trump for the historical black mark on what he did here. What future president could ever, forget about being removed, could ever be impeached? And that, to me, is why there is a historical imperative to do this. I still believe that there is. I'm just wondering whether or not the people in charge here have their act together well enough to not make sure that this is some sort of a disaster. I'm all in favor of honorable defeats, but it has to be a respectful and, uh, and a defeat that's not a humiliation. I'm concerned that the people in charge here are so timid and so don't know what they're doing that uh, Trump may end up with a victory that's so large that it, it mutes the importance of setting this, not setting this historical precedent.
2: Well, I think you can argue that. I mean, so uh, as you say, ver in a very stirring, uh, unpleasantly stirring way in the in the piece. Maybe we just aren't that country anymore. Maybe we just don't have the ability uh, to 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 summon in, from inside ourselves the strength and the commitment to principle that would be involved in doing this. Some people might argue that the election of Donald Trump kind of proved that, or maybe even the primary win of Donald Trump, as he just mowed through the Jeb Bushes and the Marco Ru. And the John Kasichs and, and you know having punchlines instead of policy, uh, having a, a fairly poor command of the issue uh, issues, but a great command of how to do name calling. At that point, we kind of had decided that an entertainer, uh, a guy with a spotty business record, but a terrific uh, success as a reality show host, could be our president. Maybe that's when this the sort of the Ziegler principle was proven.
4: I get that. Uh, I, that's probably true. I am a big believer, though, that sometimes strange things happen, mistakes happen, accidents happen. I have two young daughters. They tell me all the time everything they do wrong is an accident. Uh, you know, Maybe <laughs> this was just an accident of fate, a perfect storm, if you will, but when you have a situation where you have the ability to deliberate – and you have time to understand what has happened, and you have a two-year investigation with a 400-page-plus report, plus a whole lot of other things that that aren't even in the report that I believe are impeachable, and as a deliberative body, you're unable to even indict a sitting president, which is what impeachment means, then to me, it's definitive. It's, it's forever. We now know we're not a great nation. Uh, the John McCains uh, are, are no longer literally with us. They're replaced by Mitt Romneys, who are uh, uh, cowards who claim to be courageous, I'm, a, I'm really disappointed in what, how Mitt Romney has handled this whole thing. And other than Justin Amash or Michigan, no one on the Republican side has stood up for what is right, what is true, and for the Constitution and for historical principles. And so I guess to me, it's just, uh, you know, we had a strong suspicion that what you're saying was true after the election, but now we know it for sure. And, uh, and there's an element of that that I think needs to be recognized.
2: Um, John, uh, you're no stranger to controversy or uh, even rebukes from either side of the aisle. I'm wondering if you've heard much, uh, either from listeners or people in office, since this piece appeared.
4: Oh, I've gotten lots of reaction. Uh, cult 45, as I refer to it, Cult 45 being Donald <laughs> Trump's cult because you know they believe him every time, just like the old Billy D. Williams commercials. I've heard a lot from Cold 45. I upset them dramatically because they know I'm a conservative. I'm way more conservative than Donald Trump. My track record uh, on that is is nearly impeccable. Uh, And it bothers them greatly that someone like myself has not drank the Kool-Aid. And I'm pointing out facts. And one of the things I do in the column, which we've not had a chance to do here because it just takes too much time, is I I make the case for why Donald Trump should be impeached. And it's overwhelming. And there's numerous... uh, 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 things that he has done are easily proven that aren't really not only, not in the in the Mueller report, but aren't even really in the public consciousness. In uh, fact, things that Mueller couldn't even have known about, like I believe that the firing of Jeff Sessions was now in light of what Bill Barr did, an impeachable offense, because it was obviously an act of obstruction of justice. And so the case against him is overwhelming. And I, I, I really do believe that we need to acknowledge that from a historical basis. But whether or not we will, I, I have my doubts. I, I no longer have faith and what a great country we used to be.
2: Yeah, and, and by the way, you did a, a very nice and uh, clear language laying out uh, of uh, those arguments, violations of the emolument Clause, welcoming help from a foreign adversary, firing Comey, firing Sessions, directing Cohen to uh, commit uh, campaign fi- finance violations, and Don McGahn to fire Mueller, dying a pardon for Manafort uh, to obstruct. So yeah, you did a great job with that. I don't know that you'll necessarily be thanked profusely by uh, a lot of your fellow uh, conservatives, uh, but uh, it's a really interesting piece, and we will have a up on our site so people can go and find it. John Ziegler, great to hear your voice.
4: Hey, Thanks so much for having me, and uh, I really appreciate
5: you, you speaking out for the truth.
2: All right. Uh, and you can hear John's voice uh, on his podcast as well. Uh, so uh, first of all, I want to thank Betsy Kaplan. We really did have to, I mean, we call this show The Scramble, the show that we do on Mondays, because built into it is the idea that we're going to kind of scramble around at the end of the weekend, the beginning of the week, and figure out you know what the big news is and how to talk about it. Uh, this week we really, really had to do that because of a medical emergency in, in one of our producers' families. Uh, and so uh, a bunch of people jumped into the breach, but Betsy Kaplan led the charge and got this show on the air. And we've got some pretty interesting shows the rest of the week. Um, we are going to rerun our uh, interview with Darko Treznik tomorrow. It's a really interesting, far-ranging conversation. If you didn't hear it the first time, I hope you'll hear it again. We're doing a show on Soylent, the food replacement, the real food replacement, uh, on Wednesday and on Thursday, our long-awaited, uh, produced by uh, by Lily Tyson UFO show. Uh, and and, well, I mean, as you, as you perhaps know, uh, UFOs are gaining a little bit of credibility these days. But you may not know all the ways that they're gaining credibility. So, anyway, stay with us for the whole week. We'll have the news on Friday, too. Thanks for listening today. Thanks to everybody who helped out.